Feast of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. And welcome to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Great to be here with you today, and I'm glad you're listening as I am discussing matters related to worship, theology, and culture. Um, I very well might take a break after this week and uh, maybe jump back into some podcasts in January or February, but no promises. I, I might have one over the next few weeks. Um, but uh, today, as we're in Advent, uh, I hope you are having a wonderful Advent season and um, uh, considering what it means to expect Christ and his return, and he will return for his own eventually. And uh, so that is what we are doing as a church, as Christian people. Uh, we are constantly prepared and preparing ourselves as we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next, uh, continuously being sanctified in our preparation of Christ's return. And so uh, today, what I want to talk about is a theological matter, and um, it is related to the Reformation again. I discussed the Reformation last week, uh, but I want to discuss it again today. And today, uh, what I'm going to be talking about is Scripture and an historical interpretation. Uh, and, and really what I want to examine is the Reformation's impact on congregational participation, I mentioned it briefly last week. One of the impacts of the Reformation is that people were now available and ready uh, to, to worship God because of the resources available to them. And so I want to talk about that impact, some negative consequences that I see in today's church, and some possible proposals that would curtail that. So of the necessary adjustments attributed to the Reformation, congregational participation is perhaps one of the most all-encompassing and lasting. Um, I mean, here we are centuries later, and I would say the norm in Protestant churches certainly is for the congregants to participate. Um, and even in Catholic churches now, people participate, and that was not the case before. In a Western society which discouraged participation in corporate worship, the Reformers gave hope to believers by implementing the vernacular language, music accessible to the common person, and a biblical canon in the language of the people. And so congregants were given the resources to participate in worship and did so with potency. And so centuries of expansion brought the church to where it is now regarding worship. What I mean by this is a place of consumer-driven and self-centered worship practice. Perhaps it was subconscious and unintended, but the elaboration of what the Reformers intended with congregational participation has caused a morphing in perspective. And so shifting back to the original goal of congregational participation is not impossible but it requires two primary proposals. And so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to examine the two primary differences between today's worship practices and the Reformation's concept of congregational participation. And then what I'm going to do after that is offer two essential proposals that, uh, that, that could be suggested to inhibit the continuation of these two detrimental realities of modern Christian worship. And so hopefully this is helpful and beneficial to you. So, number one, uh, 
uh, of the two negative aspects of congregational participation uh, that the, the Reformation brought about, number one is today's consumer mentality. Um, observations, I think, might easily lead us to the conclusion that modern Protestant worship has taken the appearance of consumerism. In other words, the average congregant sinks his or her preference when it comes to the worship of the living God. And the Reformation's impact on worship participation would likely be considered positive by most Christians. Perhaps, what I would say is the, the exaggeration of, uh, of the concept of participatory worship has created a greater chasm, I think, between solidly biblical worship and the consumerist mentality. Many local churches today offer what could be described as a concert rather than a corporate worship experience. Even the music utilized in congregational worship now includes melodies that are more difficult to sing than, than prior to the Reformation. And so uh, what I mean by that is prior to the Reformation, the, Reforma the Reformers desired to simplify congregational music in the name of accessibility to the common congregant. Okay, it should be accessible. People should be able to sing it. There is a time and a place for elaborate and difficult music, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want people to participate, you can't have that. And so, uh, and me as a worship leader, there are creative ways to implement even even um, difficult and complicated music. There are ways to implement that where the congregation can still participate, but I don't think that should be the norm. People should be able to sing. And so these practices are indicative of churches which offer entertainment to consumers rather than a fellowship of believers who worship God. So while congregational singing became the standard during the Reformation era, uh, because of Martin Luther's drastic influence, it's, it's unlikely that Luther himself could foresee what would become of Protestant worship in the centuries to follow. Luther himself championed accessibility for all believers, all across the board and in all regards. And so for Luther, because God the Father is accessible to his people through Christ the Son, Christian living and worship should be as well. Lutherans worshipped and prayed corporately in the vernacular language for them that would have been German. And they heard sermons in the same. And they sang hymns in their native tongues. And, and it wasn't just Luther, it was Calvin. And you name the Reformer, this was the common thread. And so this was vital to the Christian worship experience for Luther. In fact, Luther succeeded in publishing a German Bible so that his parishioners could understand and interpret the text on their own. But the centrality of congregational participation developed in the church over the centuries to take the modern form of consumerism it holds today. Uh, Megachurch and commercial influence by, uh, by large churches around the globe. For example, let me give you an example. Hillsong Church. Okay, that's, that's one. And you can name uh, Gateway Church, uh, Bethel. There are many today that I think uh, have a, a corner on the market of church music, for example. And, and these churches have impacted nearly, nearly all facets of Western Christian life. Christian worship in most Western churches today tends to emphasize a conversational and therapeutic approach to worship. And so the ending result has been, although perhaps not purposely, 
detrimental to the church. Worship exists for the glory of God alone. And so the consumer mentality which pervades the modern church has created a rift in doxological Christian worship. Luther's liturgical reform was guided by the principle that if the scriptures did not expressly reject a particular practice, the church was free to keep it. And so consequently, Lutheran worship retained much of the ceremonial practice of Catholic worship. But congregational participation became central to Reformed worship, and it persists today. The Reformers all shared the common belief that Christian worship is participatory in nature. And the goal of participatory congregational worship was not to form an industry as we have today and offer consumers the best option that matches their own desires. That was not the goal. Since worship exists to give glory to God, believers should have little to no consideration of their own desires, but rather of what God desires and how his people worship him. And so the consumer mentality developed over the centuries, and and it perhaps began with good intentions. Okay, This was not something that Luther and the Reformers set out to uh, achieve what's going on today. What has evolved, nonetheless, is a culture of professing Christians who seem to approach worship as an element of self-gratification. Certainly, reform needed to occur in congregational participation, and one would be right to question whether this concept has produced uh, biblical worship or just a man-made device aimed at pleasing people. It would be right to question that. And, and many people do already. Congregational participation in corporate worship was a drastic reality of the Reformation. And vastly different from the previous centuries, the Reformers' view of an approachable God through Jesus Christ influenced the way they worshipped. Such philosophy exists today, but perhaps with an even greater vigor. And I don't mean that in a, in a positive sense. Not only do modern believers participate in worship, The abundance of offerings for worshipers has seemingly created a consumer mentality among professing professing Christians. If you don't like this church, go to this one. Their music will be different. You know, whatever the case, it's like this, this menu that you are given, you know, choose this. What do you want today? And that's not what worship was designed to be. While intended for good, congregational participation should still have in mind the glory of God through Jesus Christ rather than the appeasement of human desires. So today's consumer mentality is one of the, that's the first negative aspect I want to talk about. The second is today's self-centered mentality. Jesus says in John 4, 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Based on Jesus' words here, what are commonly referred to as seeker-sensitive churches should conceivably re-examine their approach to worship. Because, at least in the context of worship, God is the one who seeks rather than people. And an astonishing realization regarding Christian worship is that the act of worship involves the community of God's people. This is not to suggest that private worship does not exist. Okay, private worship certainly exists, but God's people are primarily a unified body rather than a combination of individuals. 
Paul's organic conception of the church is significant to understanding both its its, uh, covenantal and sacramental nature. What is most important to both understandings, however, is the identification of the church as the body of Christ. The church derives its identity from identification with Christ. Christians are identified with Christ, period, end of story. Christ died for his singular bride, which the plurality of all believers form. So Christian worship is employed corporately and is designed to form the body of Christ. Mary Cornell writes writes this, Worship is formative. It not only expresses, but forges the community's belief. Worship practices are informed and shaped by doctrine, and simultaneously they embody and express particular theological beliefs and model ethical practice. There's an ancient, there's a reformed saying, lex credendi lex orandi, which means as I worship, so I become, or I become the way I worship. Worship is formative in nature. In an embellished effort to rid themselves of Catholic practice, Protestant churches in the centuries following the Reformation moved beyond the practices of the Reformers by inflating individualism to far more than community. Okay? In other words, they made it more important than the communal aspect. And it's generally recognized that the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution of the 17th century constituted a watershed in the religious sensibilities of the Christians in the West. Humanist thought permeated Reformation-era culture even in the church, resulting in centuries of development around individualism. And so what has perhaps been lost due to the Reformation's impact is the horizontal worship aspect. In other words, the corporate body worshiping God. Okay, There is a, a horizontal aspect, not just a vertical aspect to worship. And biblical worship is indeed the Christian faith and, and it's always revolved around God's covenant with a people rather than with mere individuals, okay? This is not to say that individuals are not part of that covenant because we certainly are and we are unique and each of us possess unique gifts, but God's covenant is with a people. And so while the reformers saw the great need for congregational participation in Christian worship, the idea has grown to a greater degree than perhaps intended. Disagreement with ritualistic practices of Roman Catholic worship um, prior to to the Reformation permeated Reformed thought. And so the notion was that congregational participation should certainly protrude sincerity among believers in their worship practices. And maybe you've heard something like that. Uh, but let me give you an example. There are many people that believe if they attend a Bible-believing church, a Bible church, uh, a church that teaches the Bible, that if you adhere to some sort of liturgy, that that is insincere. If you say a written or memorized prayer in corporate worship, that is insincere. Okay? I want to tell you something. The planning liturgy, that sort of thing, has nothing to do with sincerity. Someone could easily uh, 
be more sincere in a liturgical practice than someone in a free church who says a prayer that is extemporaneous. And so just because someone, let's say they um, pray a prescripted prayer, they could be far more sincere than someone who prays an extemporaneous prayer. It has nothing to do with it. And so the notion was that the congregational participation would bring out sincerity among believers if they separated from liturgy. And so that was the notion, and I believe a a false notion, and many of you have heard me talk about that. John Whitley writes this. Historian Edward Muir describes the Protestant Reformation as a movement from medieval Catholic concern for ritual to Protestant concern for sincerity. John Martin describes the emergence of Protestantism as both a reflection and cause of a radically new Renaissance conception of selfhood, a new emphasis on self as subject, which reflects a characteristically modern concern. To state that someone is sincere or not sincere, to see particular utterances of works of art and literature as essential expressions of individual selves, above all, to desire to connect speech with feeling, end quote. So what began with a good intention to bring the church to a place of right and sincere worship has become a present-day display of humanism's influence on Christianity, stalwartly linked to today's consumer mentality. Today's self-centered mentality is also an overemphasis of Christian individualism. God's covenant work is among a unified body rather than mere individuals. In other words, each individual Christian, although possessing unique gifts and personal and a personal relationship with God, is part of a larger picture, namely the body of Christ and his redeeming work within her. Christ, the ultimate example of humility, took on the form of a human and gave his life for those whom he loves, according to Philippians 2. The Reformation's shift towards congregational participation in worship was surely necessary, but an exaggeration of something good is what developed over the course of the subsequent centuries. And Protestant churches today still employ congregational participation, but also seem to focus on individuals rather than the body of Christ and existence for the glory of God. And keep in mind what I'm saying here is um, this is what is going on um, in an overarching manner, okay? This, this is not saying that every single church does this. This is saying this is what I see uh, from my observations overall in a large sort of way. And so the Reformation has certainly impacted Christian worship and achieved many positive goals. Today's mentality, however, seems immensely different from Reformed Protestant thought. And so what are some modifications? If I were to go back to the Reformation era, if I could see the future and see what was going to come out of this, okay? As I mentioned already, the congregational participation needed to happen. But if I could see what was going to happen, here's what I would have done, okay? There are two proposals that I think would assist in curtailing this or even preventing it. Number one, cling to liturgical practices while simultaneously following or allowing for congregational participation. And number two, approach worship as upreach rather than outreach. So let's talk about liturgy. Okay, 
What is a liturgy? Many people get the idea that that liturgy means um, adherence to a lectionary. Well, that is certainly liturgy, but every church has a liturgy. Even those that say they do not, they have a liturgy. Trust me. A A liturgy is an order, okay? So what do I mean by liturgy? When I'm talking about liturgy here, I am talking about some sort of adherence to a plan, a method, an intentional method and way. And what we have in the Revised Common Lectionary or the lectionary that that many churches utilize is something that has been scrutinized and been developed over centuries that is, because of that, good. Okay, you can go read if you just Google revised common lectionary and look at what is there. Look at the readings for today. Look at the scriptures. Look at the prayers, uh, many of them from the Book of Common Prayer. These are elements when you read them, there is absolutely nothing that any Christian should argue against. Okay, so adherence to a liturgy doesn't imply strict legalism and loyalty to the practice, but rather to the God for whom it's designed to declare. That's the purpose of liturgy, to declare God. At its best, liturgy enables a worshiping community to proclaim and celebrate God's reconciling love made known in Christ and transforms that community to be the body of Christ in the world. And so Christian worship should be a vivid display of the body of Christ rather than a hodgepodge of individuals who seek their own indulgences. The Reformation brought several necessary changes to the church, including congregational participation in worship. Due largely to scripture, the music, and the prayers being employed in the vernacular language, believers were able to faithfully worship God with their own personal understanding. The goal in doing so, however, was likely not to elevate um, the individual over the body, but instead to give individuals a role within the body. Okay, it's not to diminish the in, the individual, but for the individual to realize that you have a part within the body of Christ. And so liturgy aids in that purpose. With a liturgy employed, God's people share a common language, emphases, and understandings. Rather than preachers acting as celebrities to whom congregants listen, A liturgy ensures those who lead in worship remain faithful to the themes and scriptures and the biblical text from which those elements are derived. And rather than merely observing church leaders employ worship practices, Luther and other reformers rightly contended that the entire congregation should participate. To correct the course towards self-centeredness and consumerism, clarification on the corporate nature of the church through liturgy could have been supported in a stronger manner. And so that's what I would do. If I could go back, I would make it clear that we are going to abide by a liturgy. Yes, congregational participation is necessary, but we are going to make sure we are faithful to God and to the biblical text. And so where the Catholic Church retained a strict and legalistic adherence to ritual, centuries of congregational participation developed into today's common individualistic approach to worship. A tie to liturgy, however, would likely at least curtail that development, forcing believers not only to understand the corporate nature of the church, but also realize that worship does not exist for the affections of humans, but for the glory of God. 
Additionally, the Reformation saw the centrality of Scripture in Christian worship. While not a negative aspect, the centrality of Scripture has seemingly developed into what could be considered a show of teachers in the pulpit. Okay? Uh, Let's admit it. We have some celebrity pastors out there. In other words, pastors uh, and gifted communicators have become idolized because of their teaching ability. And, and maybe some of us have been guilty of doing so. You know, oh, this guy is just an incredible teacher, and we read everything they say and think that they could do no wrong. But this perspective easily ingrains in people that Scripture is the most important part of the worship service, when the reality is, listen to me here, all elements of Christian worship, okay, for example, music, ordinances, Lord's Supper, uh, baptism, etc., uh, etc. These these things work together to form a whole with no one element being more essential than the other, okay? So the sermon is not the most important part of the worship service. Hear me on that. It is not. All of it works together. In fact, the historic fourfold order of worship is the gathering, the word, the table, and the sending, Okay? Liturgy grants an intentional method for churches to practice Christian worship in a way that does not glorify any aspect of the the worship service above the God it is designed to honor. And there seems to be little middle area. There seems to be a middle area, I think, on the spectrum between, uh, let's say, strict legalism and the severing of legalism to the point of enhanced individualism. Okay, People try to separate themselves from strict legalism and adherence to liturgy and then you have the other end where it's strict adherence to liturgy and and it's not true worship not sincere worship there 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 seems to be a middle ground between there and the connection to liturgy uh, to liturgy would likely cause local churches to examine their practices and consider their trajectories the reformers certainly offered necessary changes to the church but in their their developments over the centuries Uh, We have been given in today's church a tainted appearance, reclaiming liturgy for the glory and worship of God in a corporate sense, I think would enhance local churches worship practices and diminish the impact of individualism. Okay, so that's proposal number one, liturgy. Proposal number two, upreach. So what I mean by that is that we should approach worship as upreach rather than outreach. Today's local churches tend to place emphasis on utilizing worship as a means to evangelize, okay? You know, invite people to church. That's what we're always told. Invite people to church. And that's your way of evangelizing. Listen to me. Someone who is lost, according to Scripture, is a worshiper of Satan. Now, you may not think of them as such, and they probably don't think of themselves as such, but they are worshipers of Satan, So when you invite a lost person into your context of worship, you are inviting a worshiper of Satan into that place. And this is not to say that worship doesn't have an evangelistic aspect. It certainly does. And God has used Christian worship to minister to people who are lost and bring them to a point of salvation. Okay? So I'm not saying don't invite lost people. But too often we use worship as the tool to evangelize, and that's not what it's designed to be. Worship exists for God and for his people. In fact, one who is not a Christian has no ability to worship God because he or she is not in the spirit. 
And certainly the church is given the task of preaching the gospel to the world, according to Matthew 28, 19, and 20. But worship, in other words, glorifying God, is the primary task of the church. All other tasks stem from the overarching goal of worship. If the church would prioritize worship and approach it as an act solely devoted to declaring the Lord, the temptation to craft consumer-driven worship practices would likely be diminished or eliminated. The Reformation created a way for God's people to worship sincerely. Centuries of development, however, caused a self-centered and consumer-driven approach to worship. For God's people to realize worship that exists solely for his own glory, the act of the act of worship should be approached not as a method of outreach, but only as an act which brings God pleasure and glory. So this proposal requires a shift in theological teaching from church leaders. The language used in speaking of worship should shift as well as the actions implemented in a local church worship. If church leaders would begin to communicate in a way that references worship as upreach rather than outreach, congregants would begin to shift their own thoughts and perspectives. Consumer-driven and self-centered worship then would be severed and move the church to the reformer's original desire for congregational participation, a body of believers gathered for God's purposes, irrespective of their own preferences. So here's my conclusion. The bittersweet reality of the Reformation's impact on congregational participation. I think few would argue against the benefits the Reformation had on congregational participation. God's people were given an opportunity and a mode of worshiping the living God together. Martin Luther found himself, however, uh, he, he appreciated liturgy. And so he found himself utilizing it in his local church contexts. Okay, He did not separate himself from liturgy. A lot of people don't realize that. Yes, he was a reformer, but that's one aspect he did not reform and didn't want to. And it's apparent that his goal was not permanent riddance of liturgy, but for the people of God to also participate in the liturgy along with the church leaders. And so centuries of congregational participation's development provided the way for unintended consequences to manifest in today's worship practices. Consumer-driven and self-centered worship practices have arisen in the church and are evident in many of today's contexts. And so what I've offered to you here are, are two primary proposals for curtailing the continuation of these detriments. Those proposals are liturgy and a focus on upreach rather than outreach. Of the vast good that the Reformation brought in the way of congregational participation, the bittersweet reality also includes the negative consequences, consequences which I, I think surely exist today and are evident. You don't have to look very far. You can find them in your hometown. And so there is no impossibility of shifting back to the purity of the reformer's desire. But the church as a whole and her leaders need to be intentional about doing it. And so here we are today, hundreds of years later, in light of the Reformation, we can look back on it and see what happened and know that congregational participation was certainly a good thing and something that needed to be reformed, but also see the unintended consequences of what came out of that. And I think if we would take a step back and not throw the baby out with the bathwater and realize that, hey, we, we can change some of these things, the language we use, the way we talk about worship. We can change these things and there can be a shift uh, to 
what is right and the right way to worship. And so I hope that we do that. I hope, and it's going to be a continuous battle. We're never going to get it perfect. We're never going to get it right. But we can at least, that's not an excuse not to try. We must be as precise and as good as we can be when it comes to worshiping God. I hope this has been helpful and beneficial to you. Thank you for listening today to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Did it, did it.